Now I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me first of all to Psalm 8. We'll read from the psalm which we've just sung. Psalm 8 is quoted in Hebrews chapter 2 which we'll also read from. Psalm 8, to the chief musician on the instrument of Gath, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, you who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength, because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Let's now turn to the New Testament, to the Gospel of John. We'll read the opening verses of John's Gospel. John chapter 1, verse 1 to 14. John 1, beginning of verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So far from the Gospel of John, let's also turn to the letter written to the Hebrews. The letter is written to, to the Hebrews who were a, a group of Christians who were in danger of falling away from their faith. And the author really makes a point of saying that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than the Old Testament sacrifices. That's one of the big points of the book of Hebrews. So let's begin by reading verse 1 to 4 of chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, 
has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now let's skip ahead to chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. For he, that's God, has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and set over the works him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all things in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given to me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. So far the reading from God's holy word. Our catechism lesson this afternoon comes from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 14, where the church has, summarizes and confesses what the Bible teaches about the incarnation of the Son of God. Let's read Lord's Day 14 together. What do you confess when you say, He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? The eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took upon Himself true human nature from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, through the working of the Holy Spirit. Thus, He is also the true seed of David, and like His brothers in every respect, yet without sin. What benefit do you receive from the holy conception and birth of Christ? 
He is our mediator, and with his innocence and perfect holiness, covers in the sight of God my sin in which I was conceived and born. Dear brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, in his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer, he says that our topic this afternoon is the supreme mystery of the Christian faith. The supreme mystery of the gospel, he says, it lies not in the atonement, nor in the resurrection, but in the message of the incarnation. Now, boys and girls, incarnation is, is a big word. Perhaps you've never heard of it before. But it means simply this, that God became a man. God came in human flesh. J.R. Packer says, nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. 1 Timothy 3.16 also says that the mystery of godliness is great, that God was manifested in the flesh. And this is the mystery that we confess here in Lord's Day 14. We cannot understand the mechanics of this mystery, how exactly it all works, that God became a man. But this afternoon, as we see this truth revealed in God's word, our response is to simply believe him and adore him. Rather than scratching our heads in confusion, we bow our heads in worship at the glory of this truth. And so as we examine this truth this afternoon, may God move all of our hearts to adore him to adore His great love for us in sending His Son to cover the greatest distance to become a man. And so the message this afternoon will summarize, God became a man, come behold the wondrous mystery. And first we'll see who became man. Because when Christ became a man, that was a miracle. It's a miracle that we hear about very often. Every Christmas we hear the story of Jesus being born. And it's very easy for us to become accustomed to this idea. And we also hear the truth every year again that Jesus was true man. He was true God. We learn it in the catechism. And perhaps sometimes we become numbed to the glorious reality of this miracle. Perhaps sometimes we lose awe and wonder at just how amazing this miracle is. And so as we examine God's word on this teaching this afternoon, it's good to start, first of all, by considering who it was that took on this human nature. Because when we see that it was the glorious Son of God who became a man, and just how great the distance was between man and God, then we really begin to grasp how amazing this truth is. You see, if I loved dogs so much that I wanted to become a dog and join them because I love them so much. That would be one thing. In fact, that would be quite something, wouldn't it? But if I wanted to become an ant, if I really loved ants and I wanted to become an ant, that would be something quite different, wouldn't it? Because there's a totally different distance between man and dog and man and ant. And so we need to understand the distance between God and us, the distance that the Son of God crossed when He took on our human nature. So to grasp the magnitude of the miracle of the incarnation, we need to understand who the Son of God is before He became a man. Lord's Day 14, I believe that the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, 
So first of all, we see that he was eternal. He always was. There never was a time when the Son of God did not exist. In the beginning was the Word, John 1.1. He was not created, but in fact, he is the agent of creation. God created all things through him. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made, John 1.3. Hebrews 1 says that God made the worlds through him. The Son of God has never been created, but in fact, he is the creator. He has always existed. He is eternal. And further, he is true God. He is the Son of God, as the Catechism says. Now, when the Bible was written, this term, Son of God, had a lot of other different meanings. For the Jews, the Son of God might have referred to angels. For the Greeks, the term Son of God actually referred to demigods, the offspring of gods who had married humans. And so for the Greeks, Son of God was actually an insulting term. Son of God, that is, not truly a god. And so this term, Son of God, then, it needed to be understood correctly as one who is divine, one who is true God. And the Apostle John, in order to convey this truth, he calls the Son of God the Word. John 1, 1, the Word was with God and the Word was God. Now, when the Jews read this text, they understood that the Word refers to God's creative power. God made the world by His Word. The Word was with God. That is, just as God was eternal, the Word was eternal. They lived in relationship together with each other in eternity. So we can see that the Word was God. He was divine. He is God in Himself. He has a self-sustaining existence. And because He is true and eternal God, He is able to sustain all of life. John 1.4 In Him was life. Colossians 1.17 In Him all things consist. Because as the giver of life, he sustains all life. By the word of his power, he upholds all things. And as true and eternal God, he also has the glory of God. We read from a few verses from Hebrews 1, where it says that the Son is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. The brightness of God's glory. How bright do you think God's glory is? Very, yes. God's glory was so bright that no one could see his face because otherwise they would die. Think of the blinding glory at Mount Sinai, the glory which made Moses' face shine when he went up on the mountain and came down so that the people couldn't even see his face. This is the blinding glory of God. Or think of the glory of God which meant that the high priest could only enter the most holy place once per year. Or think of the glory of God that filled the temple after Solomon built it. 2 Chronicles 5 says that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Or think of the glory of the Lord in Isaiah's vision. In Isaiah 6, perhaps you remember when Isaiah has this vision of the Lord sitting on his throne and the angels are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And you remember Isaiah's reaction. He was terrified. Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
This is the glory of God, and the sun is the brightness of God's glory. Well, God's glory is also seen in creation. We read from Psalm 8, where David says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, you who have set your glory above the heavens. When David writes this psalm, he's marveling at the glory of God, which is seen in creation. We can even see it all around us right here. As David watches his sheep on the mountainous landscapes, as he sees the glorious sunsets, he sees God's glory displayed, his name written in the world. When an artist finishes a painting, she will sign the bottom corner of of the painting. But at the same time, the signature of the artist can be seen in the style of the whole painting, characterizing the whole painting. And in the same sort of way, God's signature can be seen in all of creation. His name is visible in all creation because it's shining His glory. Jesus is the brightness of God's glory, His blinding glory that no one can look on, His glory displayed in God's creation. This is the glory that He had with the Father before time began. The Son of God, He is true and eternal God. Well, compared to that, compared to God, compared to His glory, what is man? We're tiny, aren't we? David in Psalm 3, Psalm 8, verse 3, When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of Him, or the Son of Man that you think of Him? So when David looked up at the vastness of the night sky... It's always an impressive sight, isn't it, brothers and sisters, on a cloudless and hopefully mosquito-less night to gaze up at the night sky, to see more stars and more stars shining. And David looks even further than the stars. He looks with eyes of faith to see the one who made them, just to see how much bigger than the stars God is. Because just like an artist might use his fingertips to smear a canvas, to apply the finishing touches to a beautiful painting. So God, the divine artist, has made the heavens with the work of his fingers. And so David is just left in wonder at the immensity of God's creative power, at the might of God's fingers. And it's in response to this meditation, to thinking about the surpassing glory of God and just how big he is, that David looks down to man and realizes how small he is, how small we are. What is man that you are mindful of him? Because when we compare ourselves with God, our creator, we little creatures are very little, aren't we? And then what wonder, what awe that God takes thoughts for us who are but fragile and frail creatures when compared to the immeasurable majesty of our Creator. But the gap between God and man, it's even bigger than the gap between God as Creator and us as creatures. Because boys and girls, you remember that in the Garden of Eden, after God had made man, that He walked with man in the cool of the day in the garden. They walked together, man and God, walking and talking, Creator and creature, in communion. But the gap which exists between God and us now is the gap between a holy God and an unholy people. A gap which forced Adam and Eve out of the garden. They could no longer be with God because now sin was in the way. Sin was separating God and us. And that's why Isaiah, when he saw the glory of God, said, Woe is me, for I am undone. 
for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Isaiah knew that he was sinful, and so he couldn't bear to see God's glory. His unholiness put a barrier between him his the holy God. Well, brothers and sisters, the gospel of the incarnation is that God's very own Son, the brightness of His glory, true and eternal God, through whom all things were created, took on human nature. He became a man. The Creator became a creature. The divine became human. The Holy God came to live among unholy people. This is the distance that the Son of God has traveled. He's covered the greatest distance to become one of us. Come behold the wondrous mystery. Well, let's see in our second point that he became a man. The Catechism says that the Son of God took upon himself true human nature from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary through the working of the Holy Spirit. He took upon himself true human nature. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, the text says that the word tented among us. And boys and girls, we have some tents here, but maybe you can think of some tents in the Old Testament. There was a special tent in the Old Testament, which was called the tabernacle. This was the special tent where God lived. And this was a special way that the holy God could live with an unholy people. Well, that was in the Old Testament. The tabernacle was the tent connecting God and man. But now in the New Testament, Jesus is the tent. The Son of God became flesh. He was the tent between us and God. Just like the tabernacle was the bridge between God and man. Now Jesus was the bridge to connect that otherwise uncrossable chasm between man and God. The Word became flesh. He shared in our flesh and blood. As, as it says in Hebrews 2, Jesus got hungry, just like we get hungry. He probably got sunburned as well. The Catechism says he was like his brothers in every respect, yet without sin. So Jesus worked in his, the carpenter's shop like his brothers. He cut wood. He made furniture. He sweated when it got hot. Jesus had friends that he spent time with. He sailed in the Sea of Galilee. He felt the wind through his hair. He walked on the beach and felt the sand in his toes. Jesus laughed. He cried. He took on true human nature. And in doing so, he humbled himself. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, 2 Corinthians 8. He gave up his divine glory and honor in order to become a man. As he prayed in John 17, he says, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory I had with you before the world was. Before the world existed, we saw that glory that the Son of God had with the Father. And this is the glory that Jesus gave up to become a man. Well, how is this possible? Because wasn't he still God while he was a man? The Catechism says, who is and remains true and eternal God. So when Jesus was on earth then, he remained true God. But he became God plus man. There was no subtraction from his divinity, only the addition of humanity. He always remained true God, even as he took on the addition 
of human flesh. And because he was true God, he had divine knowledge. He knew that Lazarus was dead even before he saw him, even when he was in a different village. He knew that when Peter went fishing, that the first fish he would catch would have a coin in his mouth. He knew the history of the Samaritan woman in John 4, her shady past. And of course, as well as divine knowledge, he had divine power to do miracles, even to raise Lazarus from the dead. He is and remains true God. And yet, because he had taken on the addition of human nature, there were some things that Jesus did not know. For example, he didn't know the timing of his second coming. Of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father, Mark 13. And so the Athanasian Creed summarizes it when it says that the Son of God is equal to the Father in respect of his divinity, less than the Father in respect of his humanity. As a human, as a man, Jesus submitted to his Father's will, and it was his Father's will that he should have a somewhat limited knowledge while he walked on earth. He took on himself true human nature, thus submitting to his Father's will. This is a miracle and a mystery. Fullness of God in helpless babe. No wonder J.I. Packer says that this is a supreme mystery of the Christian faith. But brothers and sisters, we need to confess this. John Calvin said that those who take away from Christ either his divinity or his humanity diminish his majesty and glory or obscure his goodness. Let me read that quote again. Those who take away from Christ either his divinity or humanity diminish his majesty and glory or obscure his goodness. He was true God that shows his majesty and glory. And yet at the same time, he was true man that shows his goodness. And further, this was the work of the Holy Spirit. The angel said to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called Son of God. The Holy Spirit is the one who works this wonderful miracle. The Holy Spirit caused Mary to become pregnant. And this is why Jesus could be born without sin. The distance between God and man. The distance between creator and creature, between holy God and unholy people is so great. And yet, brothers and sisters, God sent his son to be one of us, to live in the mess of human life, to have a body and soul and emotions and thoughts and feelings and all the things that we experience as humankind. He knows what it's like. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Jesus lived in the brokenness, in the mess of life. He knows what it's like. The Holy God, the Almighty Creator, He understands humanity because He is a man. The fact that we cannot understand it doesn't take away the grandeur of this miracle. God has tented with mankind mechanics of this are beyond us, but our response is to simply adore our Savior, to adore God who has become man for us. And in the third place, we'll consider why the Son of God became a man. Because why? 
Why would the glorious creature become a creator? Why would the holy God come to live with unholy man? Answer 36 says that he is our mediator and with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sin in which I was conceived and born. This is the reason that he has solidarity with us, why he shares our flesh and blood. Not only to be empathetic, to understand what it's like to be human, but even more, even better, to take away our sin, to redeem us, and so that his perfect, sinless life can be credited to us. To be our mediator, to cross that otherwise uncrossable chasm between holy God and us sinners, so that we can again dwell with God. And he does this out of love for us. Martin Luther said, all this for us your love has done. The focus of the catechism here is on Jesus' active obedience. That he was a man without sin. He was born sinless. It's different than all of us because all of us are born as sinners. But Jesus is born without sin. And as the second Adam, he represents all who believe in him. So that his sinless, perfect life is credited to all who believe him. And so we can say then in faith that his perfect life is credited to me. As if I had lived a perfect life right from the start. Even though I was conceived and born in sin. Yet he was without sin from his conception and his perfect record is given to me. And so because I am in Christ, his sinless conception is mine. It's as if I was born without sin. Because he covers my sin right from the start, from my conception. And he also covers my sin throughout my entire life. His entire life, his entire obedience, it's credited to me as if I had lived that perfect life. Perfect righteous life. And he also died and rose from the dead as a true man with his flesh and blood. We saw last week in the morning how the apostles saw him with their own eyes. They witnessed his resurrection. They saw him as a man because he rose as a true man. And so we know that we also, with our bodies and with our souls, we shall have a glorious future with him. And so we confess with Paul in Romans, whether I live or whether I die, I am the Lord's. It doesn't matter how long I live. Even if I never see the light of day, even if I live to be a hundred and do lots of bad things as well as being conceived in sin, His innocence and holiness covers it all in God's sight. God sees me and He says, Holy, my birth, my life, my death. God says, Holy. And so do you see, brothers and sisters, why we need to embrace this confession in faith? Because when we believe in Him, His sinless confession His sinless life, sorry, is the firm foundation that we have before the Father. His sinless conception and birth, only possible because He was true God, is the firm foundation for our faith, the firm foundation on which we stand before the Father. He is our mediator. The Athanasian Creed that we read from this afternoon, it says it is necessary to eternal salvation that anyone who desires to be saved must believe in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus, as true God, became a man. So do you believe this truth? Do you believe this glorious truth? 
It's a mystery, but it's a wondrous mystery. Because God has given us a way to himself, John 1, 12, to all who did receive him. He gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name. When you believe in Jesus, the true son of God, the father brings you into his family. Jesus becomes your elder brother. Hebrews 12, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. The almighty God has condescended to us. He has come down to us in his son that we might live eternally with him. Come behold this wondrous mystery. Believe this wondrous mystery. And so how do we respond but to live lives of deep gratitude to him, our loving savior who has come down from heaven, who has taken our flesh and blood. The gospel of the incarnation may be the supreme mystery of the Christian faith. We won't understand the mechanics of it, but come, let us adore him. Let us adore his great and awesome love. God has become man and we will live with him forever. You who were rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, became poor. You who are loved beyond all praising, Savior and King, we worship you. Amen.